I think that on the 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 Simpson trial Zodiac, you are a Barry Sheck with a Marsha Clark rising. Marsha Clark tagline. Yeah. Because um, I told you we were doing Marsha Clark and then I sprung Paula Barbieri on you. Yeah. You're going to roll with it like a low rent 90s daytime talk show host. <laughs> Man, I'm trying to see, say something that isn't misogynistic. <laughs> Maybe that's the tagline. Welcome to You're Wrong About, the show where we try to say something that isn't misogynistic. <laughs> what are the misogynistic things that are like flicking through your head? No, just like I was going to say like where like the mistresses of history get to be the wives of the next or something, but that's fucking terrible. I think and, you're like, off to a good start. I think you're getting there. How about where the mistresses of history speak? Because there's nothing pejorative <laughs> about being a mistress. That's true. Uh, welcome to You're Wrong About, the podcast where women who co-star in men's lives get to finally star in their own. There it is. I I have had this episode sprung upon me and I have not had time to prepare a You don't have to line. do anything. You just have to lay back and let me tell you about the 90s. That's your whole job. <laughs> How hard is that? I am Michael Hobbs. I'm a reporter for the Huffington Post. My name is Sarah Marshall, and I'm working on a book about the satanic panic. Although, honestly, at this moment, I'm really putting most of my time into this podcast. So how do I say just like a second thing about myself? My name's Sarah Marshall, and I'm sitting on a sheepskin in Nashville, Tennessee. <laughs> so today we are talking about Paula Barbieri. Mm-hmm. We're going to do 14 episodes on the O.J. Simpson thing. I don't know. I more and more, I see this as a Greek tragedy. I think we're going to talk about the OJ Simpson tragedy. And it's a tragedy. Not only was there a senseless murder of two people, but everyone who became involved in this Mm -hmm. event as a trial as a media frenzy emerged, diminished in some way. Okay. And Elizabeth Wurzel, who I gave a hard time in the last episode for being so weirdly unsympathetic to Nicole's candles. Mm -hmm. Also has a great line talking about the trial, which is never before have so many people looked so bad for so little. (laughs) That's the O.J. Simpson trial. So this episode is like the period between the murder and the trial ish. Yeah, there's basically a six month period, you know, after O.J. is taken into custody before trial begins, when an incredible amount of media coverage takes place, there's an incredible amount of speculation, an incredible amount of anticipation, Mm -hmm. unless I'm really missing something. No one is orchestrating these things from the top down, but you can kind of see how past scandals are being improved upon as Mm. the 90s progress, partly because the sophistication of the media covering them and the invasiveness of the media. Mm -hmm. And America has just seen the first gavel-to-gavel coverage of a criminal trial in the United States, which is the Pam Smart case in New Hampshire, which was broadcast locally, and people would switch over from soap operas to watch it. Hmm. Like, it bumped actual programming. Like, this is one of the very early instances of people Hmm. noticing the viability of reality TV. Hmm. Well, let's let's dig in. Mm -hmm. Where should we where should we start? Mike, tell me, what do we know so far about Paula Barbieri based on what what I've told you on this podcast? Literally, all I know is what you told me last episode, which is that Paula Barbieri is a lady who looks like Julia Roberts and who briefly dated O.J. Simpson when he was separated, or I guess divorced, from 
Nicole Brown Simpson. Mm -hmm. That's all I got. Was your assumption that if she was around pre-murder, she would not be around post? It kind of was. It's like you don't know straight women. (laughs) And yet you talk to one like all the time. (laughs) The the reason that I want to start off talking about how all this looked to Paula Barbieri is that she was very, of all the people in the story, she was one of the only people who had unguarded access to OJ Simpson immediately following the murder. Oh, right. Here's what Dominic Dunn writes after the criminal trial about Paula Barbieri in one of his later Vanity Fair columns. Paula Barbieri, Simpson's erstwhile girlfriend, has reportedly signed a $3 million book deal with Little Brown. Since Barbieri never achieved the star status of Cindy Crawford or Naomi Campbell in the modeling profession, it seems highly unlikely that any publisher would pay such a sum for her life story unless there were a clear understanding that she had something very saleable to write or have written for her about her former lover. Their sexual union was said to be extraordinary. The sounds of their lovemaking in Robert Kardashian's house on the night before Nicole's funeral, according to an inside source, woke up the household. Oh, my God. Barbieri's real value to the overall story, however, is that she knows what Simpson thought and said about Nicole in the weeks and days before he killed her. Mm. Just the night before, they went to a black tie party in Bel Air together. She broke up with him the next morning, the day of the murders, and went to Las Vegas But after the news of the murders, she returned immediately and stayed in Kardashian's house with OJ. She was present during the crucial four days between the murders and the freeway chase. Oh. And then Larry Scheller, who wrote one of the 700 books about the OJ Simpson trial, is quoted by Dominic Dunn as saying, I can understand Paula getting that kind of money. She's got all the sex to talk about, which sells, and she was there when the lawyers talked to OJ, both at the house and in jail. She was always reading the Bible or writing her Christmas cards and listening. She knows a lot, and she's not bound by the attorney-client privilege. Hmm. What do you think about the Dominic Dunn description of Paula? I mean, it sounded like he was going for like a a little like, oh, she's just a model and now she's cashing in kind of thing. Yeah. Which like, whatever, people can cash in on things. I don't give a shit. Well, and let's talk about this, because I've been thinking about the cashing in accusation, and that's been a theme in our show, too. Like, so this book comes out in 1997. Let me read a snarky review of it to you. This is from Amazon? Uh, no, Michael. This is from Entertainment Weekly. Oh, like a published, like a real review? Yeah, a real review. Like oh. I'm talking, this was before the way to understand consensus about something wasn't to look at Twitter. Yeah. The before time. The long, long ago. <laughs> Ignore the fact that O.J. Simpson is now a quaint anachronism in the post-Princess Diana age. What a weird thing to say. (laughs) What a weird thing to say. (laughs) Who cares if nearly every O.J. friend, foe, lawyer, prosecutor, high-road journalist, and tabloid hack has already cashed in with their contributions to the remainder bins? That's no reason to ignore this book, the one that finally tells us, drumroll please, what O.J. was like in bed. Oh. Of course, were it not for the $3 million advance Paula Barbieri received for The Other Woman, My Years with O.J. Simpson, she could have saved herself the trouble of writing 312 pages and issued a simple statement about Simpson's sexual prowess. I want to tell you, she might have said, he's not really that great. A simple thumbs down? No chance. Especially when Barbieri saw the opportunity to turn her pedestrian life story and doomed stint as one of Simpson's numerous non-Heisman trophies into the stuff of romance novels. Oddly, Barbieri glosses over her disappointment with Simpson's, quote, humdrum and ritualized lovemaking. 
The thought had exhilarated me, more so than the act itself, I'm afraid, she writes, yet I wasn't disappointed. It's hard to explain. This sets the chilling tone for the rest of the book. Barbieri broods about Simpson's possible guilt, accuses him of infidelity, and describes his rages, including one time he grabbed a cell phone from her, knocking it out of her hand, and, quote, hurting her. Yet she never seems truly troubled by any of it. His, quote, sheer animal magnetism and their mutual affinity for John Gray's men are from Mars, women are from Venus, mm. were apparently enough to offset double murder charges, Simpson's violent temper, and his other women. Barbieri's own father had once broken her mother's ribs, she says, and that may be why she returned to Simpson after their many breakups and stuck by him when he was on trial. For the first time, she admits doubts about his innocence. But even her family can't excuse her extraordinary Nicole-like inability to truly <gasps> write this guy off. Oh, I want to stay with that final sentence. Like, let's I'm going to say it again. We're going to like diagram this thing. But even her family history can't excuse her extraordinary Nicole-like inability to truly write this guy off. It just seems very illiterate about how domestic abuse works. Right. I mean, that's that's how I would characterize it. It's like, there, like first there's the idea that Paula and implicitly Nicole need to be excused for their inability to break things off with O.J. Simpson. Right. Like, they need right. to be forgiven. By the right. public, by somebody, like they're guilty of something. Mm. And like it is an inability to end things with a controlling man. Like, why are they the villains that we have to like beneficently forgive? Right. What's that right. about? Right. It's also fucked up because like what appears to be the case is that when Nicole left him, he killed her. Yes. So being like, why didn't she leave him? Is like, maybe she had information that turned out to be fucking true that like leaving him was a threat to her life, which like, I think it's pretty safe to say that it was. So it's weird to be like, oh, she should have left him. Like she did. She took your advice and then she got fucking murdered. Mm -hmm. So like, maybe don't like, maybe now is not the time to be mm -hmm. like, oh, what took her so long? Like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the thing about cashing in, it's like, of course, it's always media that is accusing people who are, you know, friends of some participant in a trial or family members or, you know, lawyers writing books or witnesses selling their stories. It's always media that accuse them of cashing in. And it's like your whole industry yeah. is based on harvesting the trauma of random citizens. Right. And every day you go to the story mines right. and turn human lives into a commodity called narrative. Right. And this is like, this is the last $3 million she's going to make. Like, it's not like, yeah, she published this book came out when she was a 30 year old model right. who had essentially sacrificed a couple of the last reliably profitable years of her life right. to a guy who was going through a trial. Is she his girlfriend during the trial? Do they continue dating? That's a very good question. And it's one that uh, she and Christopher Darden, who's one of the prosecutors, come to blows about oh, eventually. What? Because Paula Barbieri and O.J. Simpson get together in May 1992. Okay. So like at the moment, basically, that O.J. and Nicole's separation is getting serious. Mm -hmm. And so from the beginning, he's super serious about her. Mm -hmm. So 
Dominic Dunn is covering O.J. Simpson's trial for Vanity Fair. He's essentially a member of the Greek chorus Mm -hmm. in this long tragedy. And he does this wonderful thing in his Vanity Fair coverage where he literally will put in, for the most part, unattributed quotes into his O.J. coverage that do feel like you're hearing from the whispers of a Greek chorus or just the whispering gossip of Los Angeles. And for the most part, like fancy, rich, white Los Angeles Mm. people, like people in society Mm -hmm. who regard Faye Resnick as new money, although Dominic Dunn thinks rather highly of Faye Resnick. Mm. And so one piece of early Paula Barbieri coverage is just Dominic Dunn's coverage of the whispers about Paula Barbieri, which is Bob Evans knows Paula Barbieri. I heard that Paula Barbieri was with Michael Bolton at the Mirage in Vegas on the night of the murder. If Paula had been there, I bet Nicole could never have been killed that night. He didn't have any place to go. What? (laughs) What? Unpack that for me. What the fuck is that? (laughs) I don't know. What is it? It's like, how do we blame women for this? Like, how do we reach so far around a corner to blame a woman for this somehow? There's a lot of weird logical twists here where even in, and who knows what this person is trying to say, but... Throughout this, when people are trying to defend OJ's innocence, they will often inadvertently say something that suggests his guilt. (laughs) What the fuck? Yeah. Where are we in, like, in time now when she gets introduced? Well, Paula is is part of the OJ Simpson coverage from the beginning. Oh, really? Okay. So she's, like, kind of known as his girlfriend from day one. Yeah, because she had been publicly linked to him before. Okay. He was photographed with her at a black tie event mm-hmm. on the night before the murders. And oh. I'll show you a photo. This is on the back coverage of oh. Paula's book, The Other Woman. Oh. My Years with OJ Simpson, A Story of Love, Trust, and Betrayal. Wow. And here's the picture of them that night oh wow okay what do you think he looks very handsome he does have an enormous head it he really, does have i mean people mention this head. a lot and it's like yeah. it really is a big head yes and she's wearing like a beautiful gold dress she's gorgeous beaming she has like brown curly hair you're now accidentally scanning down to her boobs and i'm only <laughs> looking at her boobs <laughs> i'm trying to smoothly pan down yeah i mean she's like super she's super attractive she's beautiful i don't know if i think she looks like julia roberts particularly but like she's super pretty she doesn't look uncannily like julia roberts mm. yeah i think it's just it's a way at the time of being like oh she like highly resembles someone who's sure, yeah. very highly prized by hollywood right yeah, now like yeah. she's a grade a top shelf woman yeah But so, uh, should we walk through her relationship with OJ or should we start with the murder? Where should we start? Well, let's actually, let's start Paula Barbieri's story the way Paula starts it in her book, Mm -hmm. which came out in 1997, which starts with Paula on June 12th, feeling just like that after two tumultuous years with OJ Simpson Mm -hmm. in an on again, off again relationship, she's finally ready to move on. Mm -hmm. And she's finally met a man who makes her feel excited and happy and like she could really fall in love again. Mm-hmm. And his name is Michael Bolton. Really? Uh-huh. Wow. I just want to warn you, the celebrity cameos are going to get out of control <laughs> in this episode and they're going to stay that way. But I mean, can, can we talk about, I guess I've been thinking about this a lot. Can we talk about who Michael Bolton was? Who was he? Because I think people who have no memory of the 90s like 
probably weren't exposed to Michael Bolton. Yeah. And like, that's that's nice for them. I just think Michael Bolton was somebody, he's like an adult contemporary music star who, it seems like every culture needs a sort of like whipping boy, like the least cool person imaginable. Yeah. That was Michael Bolton. Right. But also that he was that because he was so big. Oh. So the thing about Michael Bolton, the way you always would recognize his voice is that he would be singing about this like very melodramatically emotional content, mm-hmm. but in this like very craggy, like Batman voice. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Can you hear Michael Bolton in your head? No, because I don't think I ever actually heard or like, I'm sure I've heard his songs in like elevators, but I, I can't like name a Michael Bolton song. Well, Mike... I have a treat for you. Oh, no, don't make me listen to Michael Bolton's song. Because Paula Barbieri <laughs> met Michael Bolton when she was in a music video for one of his songs. Oh, no. Are you going to make so me watch it? So we have to watch oh, it. Oh, my God. So let me first read to you. Let me tell you first <laughs> Paula's account of her relationship with Michael Bolton. Mm-hmm. Paula writes, On the morning of June 12th, 1994, I nearly skipped into LAX for my flight to Las Vegas. I felt healthy and strong for the first time in months. I was 27 years old, but I bubbled like a teenager, like a girl in a new dress, ready to be kissed for the first time. Okay, so this is the day of the murder. So on the day that Nicole gets killed, that morning, Paula flies to Las Vegas, right? Yes. Okay. OJ and I had been together for the past two years. We'd had a love affair to pop a thermometer. I'd shared more of myself with OJ than I ever thought I could share with anyone. I believed I knew him, body and soul, as well as a woman can know a man. But OJ had proven me wrong. He'd lied to me more than once till my trust had crumbled. Even as he swore I was the only one, I had a fair suspicion that he'd been with other women, including his ex-wife. Nicole. I mean, that sounds like a reasonable suspicion. Yes, we know that this is is very reasonable. We were fighting every other day. I couldn't eat or sleep. I lost my usual sparkle at my modeling jobs. You could see it in the photographs. OJ was sapping my life away. Mm. Until early that morning of June 12th, when I left a 15-minute speech on OJ's voicemail, what the press would later call a Dear John message. I had to save myself, and I did it the only way I knew how. I couldn't afford to give O.J. a chance to beguile or seduce me yet again. The year before, the first time we broke up, O.J. had walked away from me. Now it was my turn, and this time I'd vowed it would be for keeps. I made explicit what we'd both known for some time. We were through. Now, I was off to see someone new. A man I'd been thinking about for months. Michael Bolton. Incredible. So she goes on to say that she made a Michael Bolton video that shot on February 14th, 1994, after she's sitting there sadly thinking about the two years that she sacrificed to her relationship with OJ. Mm-hmm. And this, and they film a video for Michael Bolton's song, Completely. Okay. The video told the story of a man, Michael, who falls in love with a girl while watching her practice her ballet from his apartment across the street. The girl already had a boyfriend who reminded me a lot of OJ. He's very charismatic and lights up a room, but he isn't true. You're finally together, the director said simply as we moved into the closing scene, shot under a Hollywood rain. My eyes met Michael's and I felt mesmerized, swallowed up into my character. As I walked toward Michael, I spontaneously shed my raincoat. I had only some very scanty underwear on beneath it. That was how I embraced him. Completely. Remember the song is called Completely. Oh. With total abandon. With all of my need and desire. My improvisation took everyone by surprise. Run the video on freeze frame and you'll see Michael's brief double take. Professional that he is, he instantly recovered to meet me in a melting kiss. (laughs) 
I threw my arms around his neck and drew one knee up against his hip. My eyes were closed to the rain in the moment. I lost track of time and place. (laughs) I mean, that's lovely. It's also funny that like, wow, what a professional Michael Bolton like made out with this extremely hot woman. I know. Due to professionalism. (laughs) You are having the experience that I have been having the entire time that I've been reading this book, which is like, does Paula know what she's saying? (laughs) No. (laughs) But this is also the thing of like, beautiful women never sort of quite believe how beautiful they are. Like, of course, Michael Bolton wants to make out with her. I know. Okay. And so now it's the time now that I, you have heard Paula's experience of this video and of Michael Mm. Bolton. I would like us to to watch this video. I was hoping to distract you so you'd forget about that, but okay. Nope. (laughs) That normally would work, but not this time. I think, again, like, I always thought people were, like, a little overblownishly mean to Michael Bolton. Mm -hmm. He wasn't, like, you know, burning books in the street or, like, That's true. At the same time, you haven't watched this video yet. I was watching this video and listening to the song and I was like, so this is, you know, Paul is like, this is an idea of romance and love that resonates with me. And this is what I want. And I was mm-hmm. like, hmm, what does Paula want? So like, watch this video and think about what Paula wants. And if maybe Paula deserves better from American culture. Oh, no. That's my question. Okay. Wait, so what am I Googling? Completely. Oh, there it is. That was easy. It's in, like, sepia, like, the iMovie sepia filter. Oh, is that her? Yeah, that's her. Oh, wow. She's, like, super pretty. She does kind of look like Julia Roberts. She does. She's clearly, like, a professional, beautiful person. Like, look how shiny her hair is. Amazing. We're now cutting to Michael Bolton, who has the thing of, like, this is why, it has to be why everybody hated him, was that he's balding, but he has like really, really, really long hair. Yeah. Which is just like a weird aesthetic choice. But like, let's listen to his voice though. Oh, it is kind of raspy. Oh, so now she's dancing. I mean, the thing is, if you cleaned him up a little bit, he'd be like wildly attractive. I can, you're right. If it wasn't for the fucking hair, I mean, the hair is just atrocious. No one, no one intervened. <laughs> Now he's playing baseball with youths. <laughs> Paula Barbieri is just a just a neighborhood model. Oh, and she saw him, and he's playing baseball with the kids. Oh, and they're making eyes at each other like yeah. they're in a fucking gay bar. <laughs> also, like he's supposed to be this kind of like greaser, but he lives in like a furniture showroom where he plays a piano all day. <laughs> I can't believe you're doing this to me. I know. I just feel like you you have to know like what people consumed at this time. And they were like, I am listening to Michael Bolton. And this is what America has offered to me. You know, it is actually amazing that like that this was popular. Also, look at what they have Paula wearing. She has on like a leotard with like the. OK, now here's the coat scene. This is improv. Oh, is this the coat scene? I want to see him double take. Nope. I don't see that happening. I don't see it, no. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And now he's like kissing in between her boobs because he's like, he's really professional. I feel like Michael Bolton could have written that scene. (laughs) (laughs) So now they've made love. Oh, it's interesting that he has his shirt off, but she's still fully closed. 
That's how sex happened in the 90s. Women kept their leotards on. (laughs) My God, it seems to be winding down. I've never been happier. Oh, no, it's still still happening. Was that it? Okay, that was a nightmare. (laughs) What? Tell tell me how you feel about about all that. (laughs) (laughs) It's the 90s-est thing you've ever made me do. To this point, yeah. Yes. What what really stands out to me about that song is that the final word of a song in this kind of a like mm-hmm. croony song is important, right? Okay. In part of your world from The Little Mermaid, the last word is world because that's what the song is about. You know, it's like the last okay. idea that you want to convey. The last word <laughs> and the last note that he hangs on to in the song is me. <laughs> And Paula quotes the lyrics in her book. She quotes the part that says, I want to give my heart completely to someone who will completely give their heart to only me. I'm seeing it in all caps now. Yeah. And it's just like, okay. (laughs) At best, that's a neutral. And at worst, you're talking about wanting to own someone. Right. But so what this says to me, Mm -hmm. to link it back to OJ, is that like, she seems kind of naive. Or, like, she seems like someone who isn't necessarily super... I mean, she's kind of like Nicole in a way, right? She's, Mm. like, kind of young, isn't super savvy, isn't super cynical about men. I mean, it seems like she's very, like, open-hearted. And so does that characterize her relationship with OJ? Just this kind of, like, we're into each other, it's all going to be fine kind of mode? Yeah, it's interesting. So they get together when she's 25 and he's Mm -hmm. 44, which is a big Mm -hmm. age difference. Yes. And a big power difference. But at the same time, like 25 is a world away from 18. Yeah. Yeah. And she's been on her own since she was a teenager. She's been modeling since she was a teenager. She was traveling alone in Europe, hanging out with Roman Polanski when she was 17 years old. Yikes. You know? So she's been around the block. <laughs> Ooh. She was a teenage model. She's hung out with a lot of sex criminals. Yeah. yeah. And so by the time she meets OJ, I think that she she believes, you know, an incredible amount of what he tells her. Oh, yeah, because you said last episode that he's a consummate liar. So I'm assuming that he's not telling her very much accurate about his relationship with Nicole and what's happening. Yeah. yeah. Paula's version of OJ's relationship with Nicole is going to sound different to you than the version we've yeah. heard. Yeah. To this point. And so she, at the same time that she believes a lot of what he's saying, she has some sense of what a maybe not a healthy relationship, but mm. <laughs> a survivable relationship is like. Okay. And she says immediately after the murders that he has never been physically violent with her. Interesting. And that seems to be true. And I think it's also really interesting to talk about here as we talk about what Paula says did happen in the relationship. Like, what we can see in this relationship that's consistent with the way that he treated Nicole, mm-hmm. even as that behavior didn't, according to Paula's version, get nearly to the degree that it got to with Nicole. I think it's mm-hmm. part of the same spectrum. Okay. But I think that it's at different places. Meaning that he was like controlling and capricious and jealous, but it just never escalated to the physical violence. Yeah. Or like it got, it got physical, but in a not to nearly the same degree. Okay. You know? Or that there was jealousy and controllingness, but also not to the same degree. Right. right. You know, because I think the way he treated Nicole and the way we talked about his treatment of her, it seems to me like he felt in some way that she controlled some part of his ego. 
Hmm. I mean, I think with the, with the way that his relationship with Nicole started, I think it's so important that she was 18 years old and barely yeah. out in the world yeah. at the yeah. time. And like, if it hadn't been her, you know, that he found and who took that role in his life, I think it would have been some other girl who was out on like wobbly little baby deer legs. Right, right. And so how does that contrast with Paula? Is Paula just... Paula has more power when they meet or? I think that Paula is an adult when they meet, but also just the fact that like Nicole has never left that place in his life, Mm. Mm. you know, and if you still are fixated on like spying on someone else, (laughs) then like how much, how much energy can he really bring to, I mean, and of course he did follow Paula around, but like, okay, not as menacingly. (laughs) Right. Or or not that we know of. Right. Like you said, like when he's not with Nicole, he goes back to Paula. Mm-hmm. But then he sort of leaves her for Nicole, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so she has left this message basically saying, I can't keep doing this anymore. Like I only, you only come to me when Nicole rejects you. And like you've betrayed my okay. trust enough times at this point that like... I just can't. Like, I'm protecting myself. I can't do this anymore. Right. And then she goes to Las Vegas with Michael Bolton. So she gets together with OJ. Mm -hmm. She leaves him the voicemail saying, I can't do this. She's seeing the pattern with Nicole. Mm -hmm. She leaves him. She goes to Vegas. Mm -hmm. And she hooks up with Michael Bolton. Yes. Okay. So it's June 12th, 1994. Is that the day of the murders? Yes. Paula Barbieri broke up with OJ that morning in a voicemail. And then flew to Las Vegas to be with Michael Bolton. So first of all, Paula, when she gets to Vegas, goes to see Michael play softball, mm-hmm. which apparently he does a lot. Okay. He's a powerful man who really fills out a jersey, according to her book. He has the haircut of someone who plays a lot of softball. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't think that's really an insult. I'm sure he's such a nice guy. I feel bad. It's not to imply that someone plays a lot of softball it's a very good hobby softball's dope when michael went up to the plate and hit the ball hard i whooped and cheered for him it took me back to my adolescence in panama city florida when my girlfriends and i had crushes on the community college athletes in the dorms across from my house Mm. and so she goes and meets up with michael and she's wearing a chanel style dress with a pleated skirt and a gold link chain at the waist I felt very pretty that night. I wanted Michael to like what he saw and excuses herself later in the evening to check her voicemail and sees that she has actually, I don't even know if the phrase, if the word voicemail existed back then, she excuses (laughs) herself to check her phone messages and sees that she has three messages from OJ. Mm -hmm. The first message says, girl, what is it now? I thought we were going to fill the house with babies. Oh. She writes, much later, OJ would testify that he'd hoped I could take him to the airport for a late flight to Chicago. Thank heaven I wasn't around. Had I given OJ that ride, I would have landed in some very hot legal water. Okay. Which I have written in the margin, I don't know, Paula. (laughs) The third call was different. I understand what you mean, OJ said. His tone was darker, softer, resigned. The message unnerved me. Had OJ accepted our breakup, or was this just another ploy to put me off my guard? What would his next move be? During OJ's civil trial, the plaintiffs would place into evidence a phone log. It suggested that he'd left the third message at 10.03 p.m., roughly Mm. half an hour before two people died at 875 South Bundy Drive. Whoa. So he's like, 
drunk dialing Paula right before he goes and does it, according to the prosecutor's timeline. I don't know if he was drunk at the time, but he, you know, yeah, he was calling her wow. within half an hour of, of when the murders took place. Wow. Okay. I mean, what do you make of that if we're talking about his frame of mind? You, I want to know what you think. You're, all I have was, mm, okay, that's all I have. That's why I'm asking you more. I've been talking this whole time. I'm in suspense. I'm the one who's running out of spit here, man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it just shows how all over the map he was. It's interesting. How so? Because if we believe that he killed them, which I think we both do, mm-hmm. It means that, like, at the same time, he's in a jealous rage against Nicole. He's also kind of trying to get back with someone else. Yeah. So it's like a weird, it's just weird that people's brains work that way, that you can hold those two ideas in your mind at the same time, that, like, why doesn't Nicole love me anymore? And also, like, yeah, I think it's going to work out pretty well with this other chick. Like, it's... Yeah. I mean, it's it's stupid to say it doesn't make any sense because none of it makes sense, but, like, it doesn't make any sense. It's just weird. To me, it makes sense. Because mm-hmm. it seems like all of the factors that combine that day, mm. when you look at each of them in turn, you know, just the the on again, off again reconciliation between them, the fact that she had finally broken things off with him, the fact that he had reported her to the IRS, which really turned her against him, mm-hmm. the fact that she was looking at attempting this move to Malibu, which would mean mm. that she wouldn't be living five minutes away from him right. anymore, Right. that she, you know was leaving his control. Hmm. You know, you look at all of those factors converging and then the events of that night, him not being asked to come to dinner and being explicitly barred from joining the family after the recital. Mm -hmm. And then add to that the fact that Paula had broken up with him in a voicemail. Right, right. And like, did that tip the scales in favor Hmm. of... Of him committing murder. Mm. I don't know. I think it's like, I think it's interesting that it's hard to talk about that potentially being a factor in the murders without it feeling like we're blaming this poor woman who just tried to break up with her horrible boyfriend. Yeah. Which like seems like a very prudent thing for her to be doing. Yeah. And like, I don't know. I think it like that this brings us to the, the area where I think it becomes clear to us that centering conversations around blame is not the most useful thing for us to be doing. Right. I think that we can talk about, you know, what was everything that was going on in OJ Simpson's head on June 12th, 1994, that could have led him to drive to Nicole's house and kill her and Ron Goldman, that we can have that conversation without that at the same time, you know, implicitly being, and whose fault is it aside from his? Let's blame a woman, you know? This is not blame a woman. The hit board game of the 1990s. I think it's important to separate the person from the situation. Yeah. That you can say, like, the situation of being broken up with, with his, like, plan B girlfriend. And who breaks up with him essentially because she knows she's the plan B girlfriend and is like, I'm very tired of being the plan B girlfriend. And she's like smart enough to know exactly what is going on, right? That all of his bullshit is not getting through to her. That like the situation I just got broken up with saying like that situation might have contributed to his actions later that night is different than saying the woman who broke up with him contributed to his actions. Right. Which is just like a different way of thinking about our responsibility to each other than like, Mm. you know, cable news and codependent people 
are willing to think in, which is like, you know, that it is not Paula's responsibility to protect OJ Simpson from himself and all of the violence that he may be capable of in the same way that it wasn't Nicole's responsibility to prevent him from beating her. Right, right. So she gets that message and she's like, eh, whatever. I'm with Michael Bolton. Yeah, I want her to go out and just like bang the hell out of Michael Bolton right now. I've never said that before. But well, like, I, <laughs> I hope that's how this ends. I, I'm sad to disappoint you. According oh. to Paula, she says, at 2 a.m., everyone had left the suite except Michael and me. We talked for a long while, had one last glass of champagne. Then it was really good night, as Michael had to get up early the next day to work with a celebrated songwriter, Diane Warren. We had a long good night kiss, and I felt the same wild energy between us that I'd experienced on the set four months before. The same sweetness and mystery and raw attraction all were present and accounted for. As a person who has turned down a lot of things because I need to get up early, mm-hmm. I like deeply understand Michael Bolton for the first time in my life. <laughs> You feel like you can empathize with Michael Bolton. It's like, this is a good thing, but I'm not going to do it because like I have shit to do tomorrow. Yeah. Yes. See, that's that's what I love about doing this show. We never know who we're going to feel a strange feeling of kinship with. <laughs> Today, it could be Michael Bolton tomorrow. Who knows? <laughs> and so the next morning, she puts on a sunshine yellow bikini and joins Michael by the pool. Oh. She writes... When Michael caught his bodyguard ogling me in my bikini, he joked with the guy, because it's you, I'll let you get away with looking at her like that. Here we go, I thought. I'd reached the phase with Michael where you know you really like a man, but he keeps surprising you. Michael's looks, his manner, his little turns of speech, everything was fresh and appealing. What a weird moment. Like, there's no transition between those two things. Yeah, what? So later in the day... Her cell phone rings, and it's Tom, her theatrical manager. Mm -hmm. She writes, as soon as I heard his voice, strain, nearly breaking, I got scared. (gasps) Something terrible has happened to Nicole, Tom said. What do you mean? Go back to your room. I'll call you there. Oh, wow. She goes to her room. She stops at the gift shop and get Marlboro Lights, Mm -hmm. which she smokes when her nerves are shot, she Mm -hmm. says. Interestingly, both Nicole and Paula smoked during their relationships with OJ and like hid their smoking from him because he was a big bully about it. That's like weirdly controlling too. Mm -hmm. The phone was ringing as we passed through the door. Turn on the television, Tom said. Now he sounded even worse. Within 10 seconds, I'd heard the nation's top news story. Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman had been found murdered near the front steps of Nicole's condo. Mm. I felt like I'd been hit in the head with a brick. I sank crying to my knees, and as pictures of the murder scene flashed over the TV, I prayed hysterically, please, please, please forgive me, please, please, please forgive me, please, please, please. I was pleading with a woman I'd barely known when she was alive. I was asking forgiveness from the person I despised in my most anguished hours. Mm. I had been full of resentment because she'd beaten me and taken my man away. Mm. Isn't that amazing phrasing? She'd beaten me. That sucks. Yeah. Like, of course, that means bested in a contest, but it's like Nicole's the one getting beaten here. Nicole's not beating anyone, you know, but it's like because these two women are turned against each other competing over OJ Simpson. This is the way she sees it. I know. The same like armpit of a man. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, my whole thing with getting super bummed out when like people who should get along end up in rivalries due to bullshit. And this is 
pushing all my buttons of that. And people who are rivals because their situations are so similar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. And she writes, how many times had I wished my own awful private secret breathed aloud to no one that Nicole would just vanish from the face of this earth? Mm. You must be careful what you wish for. I was sickened with guilt. As I knelt before the television, nearly out of my head, I was sure of one thing. Something had been taken from me that morning, and I'd never get it back. <laughs> this is an interesting moment because she's propelled into such intense guilt, but then it also, like, because of that becomes about her. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I didn't want to say that because that sounds mean, but yeah, a little bit. <laughs> well, it's not... I'm, I'm not saying it meanly. I'm, I'm saying it in a like, well, that seems to be happening. Yeah. Kind of a way. Yeah. And I, and that's what we do, right? It's like we do find ways to make huge, terrible things happening to other people somehow about us totally. if, if it's, you know, as a way to cope. God, humans are narcissistic creatures. And yeah. I always feel like my worst self when like some tragic, heartbreaking thing happens in like Beirut. And I'm like, I was there for two days in 2007. It was so great. <laughs> like, it's not, that's not adding anything. <laughs> Yeah. It just like feels like you, of course, feel more emotions when something happens to something that you're like connected to, even yeah. in a tangential way. But that's like your point of access to it. Yeah, exactly. Like that's how humans work. Yeah. So Paula immediately feels tortured with guilt because she spent the last two years thinking of Nicole as like this person who she like had hardly ever seen, who was more of an idea to her, who is mm. this like beautiful blonde distant woman who was oj's ex-wife who oj said was like seeing other people yeah, yeah, yeah. and he was seeing other people and they were moving on so why was oj like going yeah. to disneyland with nicole right. and the kids and why was nicole showing up in new york at christmas unannounced after previously canceling at the last minute all oh, right there's just this sense of like intense territoriality right throughout. i mean she's doing the thing where like the situation is that the guy you're seeing has a wife that he cannot break ties with, but mm -hmm. she's transferring her anger and disappointment at the situation onto Nicole as a person. Yeah. I think we all do this a lot. Oh, yeah. we have, Yes. We have all been Paula at one time in our lives. Many of us have been Nicole at one time in our lives. Mm. A lot of us have been Chris Jenner or Faye Resnick. I don't even know what that means, but like sure. it, you know, <laughs> it's, it's somewhere. The truth is out there. That's I mean, that's why... America was so compelled by this, this story, right? Because it's about human relationships mm. and romantic relationships and themes of betrayal and dependence and rage and denial. Right. We all experience these things to some degree yeah. in our yeah. personal lives. Yeah. Normally, by the grace of God, no one gets killed. Yeah. I mean, I think looking back, it's, it's, I think people's gut reactions are behind more than we admit they are. Oh, yeah. I think that a lot of the blame of women in stories like this are, I, I don't want to say like it's because men are men, but it's men like, are men, though. <laughs> but like on a gut level, like you get where OJ is coming from in a way that you don't get where Nicole's coming from, right? Like, I have a wife. She can nag me sometimes. She sometimes makes fun of my work. She sometimes mm -hmm. doesn't have dinner on the table. Mm -hmm. OJ represents like an escalation of mm -hmm. feelings that I have had. And so I get those feelings. Whereas like a woman who sort of lives in terror, lives in constant anxiety, who's mm -hmm. constantly tiptoeing around to not set off her boyfriend, who's acting out that anxiety in various 
ways, like with her sexuality, with drugs, with cuddling with Faye Resnick, with whatever, like that doesn't <laughs> hit men at like a gut level. And so it's, hmm. it's, it's like her pain is academic hmm. and his pain is real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we also assume that the world is for other people the way that we experience it and mm. that other people are treated the way that we're treated. Totally. Which like, it's a good way to put it. If you're yeah. a middle class white person is an incredibly dangerous way to assume the world right. works like you will be wrong. Right. Right. And in a way that could have dire consequences for everyone. Yeah. Looking back at the 90s, I do think that those feelings yeah. are behind Amy Fisher and Monica Lewinsky and all of these scandals. Tanya Harding, Anna Nicole Smith. Totally. Well, and I think what you're also saying here is that you see men on the whole, like American kind of white, cisgender, heterosexual, heteronormative I'm making kind of a wax on, wax off gesture right now. I don't know why. I'm opening a portal. But this kind of strain of of masculinity to be very ready to identify with the abuser and very reluctant to identify with the abused. Yeah. Yeah. What's interesting to me about that is that men are very abused in American society. Like men are often abused by their fathers or by male relatives. Mm. Like there's a lot of emotional abuse, a lot of physical abuse. Boys are sexually abused a lot in a way that isn't recognized culturally. Men are also like abused at work a lot. Like I think there's often like a component of emotional abuse and like pressure cooker male workplace things. Totally. Right. I've seen Martin Scorsese movies. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So it's interesting to me that like men want to take on this perspective of like, I don't know what it's like to live in terror of someone. And it's like, right. Yeah, you do. It's just not consistent with your the role that you're supposed to be playing in society as an adult or something like that. Right. You know, but like men know what it's like to be abused. Yeah. Men know what it's like to be Nicole. Right. Gosh. So we left off with Paula. After Paula finds out that Nicole has been murdered, she checks her messages again and finds several more messages from OJ, all saying, in effect, I need to talk to you right away. Please call me. Oh, wow. Were they after he allegedly committed the murder? Yeah. Oh. Because he appears at his house at about 11 p.m. And a limo that he ordered being driven by a man named Alan Park, who will later be an important witness, Mm -hmm. takes him to the airport where he flies to Chicago. Once he reaches Chicago, he receives a phone call telling him about the murders. Oh, okay. And then flies back to L.A. So the timeline, the prosecution timeline is... He kills Nicole and Ron at 1030, drives home, showers, I guess, and then gets in a car, flies to Chicago, and then the next day flies back. There's a lot of debate surrounding the showers, I guess. Okay. And the 1030. I shouldn't have added that. Okay. Be as vague as possible. (laughs) (laughs) I forget that every single tiny detail has been combed over. Every single thing is going to be picked over. But to be as, as vague as possible, the prosecution narrative will be that OJ... Leaves the message for Paula at 10.03, goes to Nicole's house, murders Nicole and Ron, drives back home, gets in his limo at about 11 and is driven by Allen Park to the airport and then catches a flight to Chicago. Okay. He's called and informed of the murders and then flies back to L.A. as soon as he can. You know what's a detail that I remember from the actual case happening Hmm. and made me think that OJ did it. And I think that was like an impression that I had for the whole time. Mm. Tell me if it's true. Mm. Is that the cops call up OJ and they say, Nicole is dead. Mm -hmm. And he replies with, oh no, she's been murdered. 
without them saying that to him. Is that true or is that just like a rumor I heard in the schoolyard? Okay, I'm going to read you a passage from Jeffrey Tubin's The Run of His Life to answer your question. And this is the detectives calling OJ. Phillips called the hotel at 6.05 a.m. and asked to be put through to OJ Simpson's room. Though he recognized the voice, the detective still asked, Is this OJ Simpson? Yes, who is this? Phillips chose his words carefully when he delivered news of Nicole's death to OJ. This is Detective Phillips from the Los Angeles Police Department. I have some bad news for you. Your ex-wife, Nicole Simpson, has been killed. Simpson was distraught. Oh my God, Nicole is killed? Oh my God, is she dead? Okay. Phillips tried to calm him. Mr. Simpson, please try to get a hold of yourself. We have your children at the West Los Angeles Police Station. I need to talk to you about that. And then OJ tells him he's going to get out of Chicago on the first available flight. And then Phillips goes the phone to OJ's oldest child from his first marriage, Arnell, who makes arrangements with him. And then Tubin writes, Phillips never spoke to Simpson again. Later, the detective found it worth noting what Simpson did not say in their brief conversation. Simpson never asked how or when Nicole had been, quote, killed. Phillips had not said, and Simpson did not ask, whether she had been killed in an accident or a murder. Oh, okay. So I should say that differently. The LAPD calls OJ and tells him Nicole has been killed, but they don't tell him how and he doesn't ask. Okay. So it's not as bad as what I heard when I was 12, but it's pretty bad. Yeah. And how so? I don't know. I mean, as we've discussed so many times, you can't say like, that's not how I would react if one of my loved ones was killed. Because like, Mm -hmm. I have no idea how I would react if one of my loved ones was killed. But one assumes that if I had news that like someone like my parents were killed in their home last night, I would want to know like, Who did it? Was it a gas leak? Right. I do feel like it's probably common for people to ask, like, how as the first question, because that's the thing that makes something seem real to you. Right. But on the other hand, there's also much better evidence that he committed the murders. So it's not... Right. There's other stuff there, too. It's not just that. It's not just him, him not asking how Nicole was killed. Yeah. We haven't jumped to this conclusion. (laughs) So she checks her messages. She has a bunch of messages from OJ on June 13th saying, I need to talk to you, please call me. And a message from her mom saying, whatever you do, promise me that you won't go back to Los Angeles. Oh. What do you think Paula did? She went back to Los Angeles. I guess we know, right? Yes. (laughs) We do know. But still a good guess. (laughs) Before she does that, Paula turns on her TV, as millions of Americans are doing at this point, and sees the first images that will be associated with the O.J. Simpson trial and of Mm -hmm. O.J. himself and Mm -hmm. his role in it, which is first him arriving at his home in Brentwood because the media is already there. And then him being handcuffed by the police who are going to take him in and interview him. Okay. So she's watching it and she writes, it was true. O.J. was a suspect. That's impossible. I thought I couldn't imagine how O.J. could cope with what was happening. It must be tearing him apart. Oh, interesting. Okay. What do you think of that? Well, she's empathizing with him, which is interesting. So she's not thinking that he did it immediately. I feel like Paula's reactions are going to be the opposite of what you would do, like, pretty consistently. Yeah. In this. (laughs) Her friend Mickey, Michael Bolton's friend Mickey, Mickey Sherman, says to her, did OJ ever hit you? And she says, no, he didn't. 
And she writes, as volatile as our relationship had been, as obsessively jealous as OJ could be, I didn't consider him a violent man. His rage had scared me once or twice, and I'd seen him go berserk in a hotel room. But that was as far as it had gone. Okay. What's interesting to me about that is that it's like, it's not the right question, maybe. It's like, has OJ ever hit you? No. But like, has has OJ ever scared you? Right. Yes. Right. And I think that this is a clue that in American culture, there's still this this idea that's very pervasive that's like, anything that is not actual violence is not that serious. Right. Right. Mickey also tells her not to call OJ back because he might say something incriminating to her and then she'll have a legal dilemma on her hands. No one wants that. Okay. And she writes, despite Mickey's warning, I thought about calling OJ back. He had no idea where I was and he needed to talk to me. And so she does call him and talks to him. She thinks uh, as he's coming home from Parker Center after he's been questioned by the police. Okay. And a questioning that we're going to talk about in more detail in the next episode. Mm-hmm. And she says, how are you doing? Straining to sound normal. I need you, OJ said. His voice was flat and dull, like a bad imitation of himself. Then he asked me a question. What happened to the messages I left you last night? And she tells him she erased them, and he says, good. I don't need them to start picking on that, too. And she writes, that sounded reasonable to me. If the police were looking to stick these crimes on OJ, it was a terrible mistake. I wouldn't want his messages confusing things even more. I was glad that I'd erased them. It's interesting that she's writing this in 1997. Mm -hmm. Because this is after we've gone through the trial, after whatever evidence, bloody glove, all the other stuff. Mm -hmm. So she's like in. She's like all her chips for OJ. I think regardless of how she feels in 1997, she's describing how she felt in 1994. Okay. And I think that it makes sense that, you know, that you would go maybe hard in one direction Mm -hmm. so you also like are shielding yourself from the fear that it's your fault somehow if it if he did do it Mm -hmm. which like i don't see it as paula's fault but i'm pretty sure policy is it as paula's fault policy is a lot of things as paula's fault i think it would make sense in in the position she's in to be like he couldn't have done it he couldn't possibly have done it and now this man i love needs me in a way he's never needed me before. Mm. It's like a sort of caretaking, rescuing kind of role. Yeah. Yeah. And when has OJ needed to be rescued before? Right. So she has dinner that night and then she calls OJ at his house in Brentwood where his sister Shirley answered the phone. She says he's in really bad shape. They've put him to bed and he's asked not to be disturbed unless Paula calls. Okay. And so Shirley puts her through to OJ. She asks how he's doing, and he says, every time Shirley goes out of the room, I pick up the gun. Whoa. If she wasn't here, I would have done it. And Paula says, you can't do that. People who commit suicide don't go to heaven. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> I think that's a very sweet detail about who she is yeah. at, this, at this time. And this is the book that she writes after she's been saved. Mm. She's like, okay, the first order of business here, we got to keep OJ from committing suicide because then he won't go to heaven. Yeah, it is sweet. I certainly think that it's entirely possible for her to, on some level, understand that he's entirely capable of the murders and also want to make sure he doesn't go to hell. Yeah. And OJ says to her, you've got to come back. I need you. And she writes, for me, it was a pivotal point. Once I heard OJ's pain, my decision was made. I might have broken up with the man, but that didn't change my human obligation to him. If I didn't go back, OJ would die. It was, I thought, that simple. Hmm. Besides, I was responsible here. 
Hadn't I wished the fatal wish? Wow, fuck. She calls her mom and tells her what she's going to do, and her mom says, he's going to kill you both. Oh, wow. And she says, even as I tried to calm her, I thought to myself, that would be all right, too. Wow. And then Michael Bolton comes in. Wait, what? Again? Yes. No transition. You know, she's told her mother she's going to go be with O.J. Simpson. She says, I would do what had to be done and whatever happened to me would be okay. And then Michael came to my room, concern furrowed into his face. (laughs) Which is already pretty furrowy most of the time. Which is all his face is already pretty concerned. (laughs) And then Michael Bolton is there. And what do you think Michael Bolton does? Sleep with her. (laughs) I keep wanting her to run away with Michael Bolton, even though I know that that's not what happens. Yeah, that's so sweet. It's like you're watching a horror movie and you're like, why don't you not split up? How about no one go into the basement? (laughs) According to Paula, Michael says, you don't realize... You don't realize the magnitude this is going to take on, he said. You can't even imagine how it's going to change your life. She says, I can handle this. And then Michael softly touched my face. He would miss me. I won't be able to be there for you, he said. It's just too huge. (laughs) This is like the end of a Western. It is! Michael Bolton softly touched my face. And then he got up onto his horse and rode away from the town he had just saved that I was the mayor of now. I gotta say, Michael Bolton comes off quite well in this whole narrative. Michael Bolton is like the unsung hero of the O.J. Simpson trial. He is the one person who doesn't emerge looking worse. Michael Bolton... Looks much better if you know yeah. him primarily through his work in the O.J. Simpson trial. Yeah. He's yeah. waking up early. He's touching Paula Barbieri's cheek softly yeah. before wow. he sends her into like this nightmare. Yeah. No kidding. I mean, she, yeah, she should have, she should have bounced. I know. If you only know? you'd been there. But I also don't want to like blame her. Like, it seems like it's very understandable that she didn't. I don't want to be the Entertainment Weekly person and be like, oh, then why did she take him back? Like, it seems like he needed rescuing. I think you're coming at it from a different direction because I think what you're saying is that you want good things for Paula. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And you want her to have been able to be like, you know what? This is not my problem. Right. You know, he doesn't have squatter's rights. I broke up earlier in the day. Yeah, yeah, You want her to be able to move on. And I think the situation is just that she clearly wasn't ready and that she felt like... She's been competing with Nicole this entire time, and now Nicole is finally gone. Right. That doesn't mean she wanted this to happen. Right. It doesn't mean it's her fault. Right. But it's true. Like, he used to be mostly emotionally dependent on Nicole, and she could Mm. never get Hmm. past that. And now Nicole isn't there anymore because he killed her. Right. So he has to be dependent on Paula now. Right. And she believes him to be innocent at this point. And so she perceives it as, like, supporting her boyfriend through like an ordeal in which he's being blamed for this tragic event that he had nothing to do with and even if she believed him to be guilty you know people people stay in relationships with people who they know to be guilty that happens too you know it's a complicated moral calculus but i think a lot of it often has to do with feeling that someone truly needs you because if they're in jail you know they do yeah and also like guilty people need love I'm the first to announce that position publicly, you know? Sure. And so she flies back to L.A. where she's picked up by Ellen Park, who's the same limo driver who drove O.J. to the airport. 
the night of the murders. Yes, foreshadowing. She's taken deep into San Fernando Valley, deep into the valley. Okay. To Robert Kardashian's house, where okay. OJ is being kept. So wait, who the fuck is Robert Kardashian? Are they just friends? Yeah. Robert Kardashian is a random Armenian millionaire who is an old friend of OJ Simpson's and who okay. basically reactivates his law license. I don't think that's oh. the right terminology. That sounds like superhero language. But he reanimates. Yes. <laughs> he reanimates himself as a lawyer to become a member of OJ's defense team. But he's oh. I think most valuable to the defense team as a an old and trusted friend of OJ's. Okay, so OJ's staying at his house. And so she goes there to mm-hmm. move in with OJ at that giant house. Yeah, I guess. and Ro- Robert Kardashian's house is essentially the de facto headquarters of, of the okay. defense team right okay. now because OJ has already brought Robert Shapiro on board as his lawyer. And Paula actually knows Bob Shapiro from earlier because she's been a Hollywood mover and shaker for a few years now. He's kind of known as a lawyer to the stars. Celebrity lawyer. Okay. And she writes, and now I was back at OJ's side, back where I belonged. She says she thinks a lot about the various guns OJ has, that he has guns locked in his office at home and a revolver he keeps in the car. And that this also makes her think... Even if OJ was capable of killing someone, a claim I would not accept, why use a knife when he had a gun? I mean, that sounds like the internet sleuthery that happens after any terrible thing where people are like, well, this, right. his LinkedIn profile says he used to live in Fresno, so why would he kill someone in L.A.? Like, where it's like you're just taking these random pieces of evidence and trying to fit them into some sort of narrative when they're actually kind of meaningless. Right. Like, it doesn't, to me, it doesn't feel... It's not like, oh, yeah, you know, because I mean, to me, the the first thing I think of is like, well, killing someone with a gun isn't personal. You wouldn't kill your ex-wife or you're still right. obsessed with with a gun, you know, like maybe you would. But I, I much more strongly associate this kind of this close up, you know, I can see the power I have over you form of assault. Right. With the kind of domestic abuse that he's been subjecting her to for all this time where it's. Close up, close range battery. Right. And the other thing that she says and that a lot of people said is, you know, well, why would he throw away his whole life? Why would he do that? That's not logical. It doesn't make sense. He had everything. He had all the money in the world. He had fame. He had the love of the public. Like, why would he throw that away? And it's Mm. like, well, because murder isn't a rational decision. Right. Why would he tease his wife about making like gaining too much weight? Like, that's not logical. Like nothing he's done so far is logical. Domestic violence isn't logical either, but he did that for 15 years. Yeah. But Paula just immediately goes into this mindset of like, we have to protect OJ. Like OJ might kill himself. OJ is really fragile right now. OJ is in a bad place. Mm -hmm. I have to protect him and keep his spirits up and like make sure that, you know, that he's safe. Mm-hmm. that's my only job and that's all I have to think about. Okay. So she's at OJ's house. OJ has just come home from Nicole's viewing and the funeral will follow that. Mm. And she writes, that afternoon I heard some noise at the front door and rushed to the entryway. It was OJ, shell-shocked. He seemed so sad and beaten. His face was drawn, his brawny shoulders hunched down. He looked somehow smaller than the cheerful, confident man I'd left four days before. Seeing Nicole in her casket must have destroyed him. Did he see her in the casket? I thought she was almost decapitated. She was, but they still had uh, an open casket funeral for her. (sighs) 
Okay. And he uh, spent what what people described as as a a worrying amount of time at the open casket during the viewing. Okay. So she writes, he hugged me with more need than strength, like a man clinging to a life raft in the middle of the ocean. She takes him to his room. She helps him undress. And there's a line that is just, you're just, I'll just read it to you. I watched him crumple into bed. That was a knife to my heart. To see the most exuberant person in the world look so helpless and vulnerable. I don't know what to make of that. It's so weird. It's just interesting to me because I assume this was ghost written. There's not a ghost writer credited, but this is like written in a very polished. Yeah. I'm a freelancer dancing as fast as I can kind of a way. I mean, I write like that. I know what it's I know how it's done. This is published by Little Brown. Who knows how many people worked on this project? Right. It's stunning to me that no one at any time in the process said, maybe we shouldn't let Paula say, or the person writing is Paula say, that anything was metaphorically like a knife to her Uh, anywhere. There should be some control F for like a couple keywords before they publish these books. Yes, exactly. And it's just like, it is clear based on the general emotional tenor of the whole thing that she's describing and her attitude toward OJ and the way she's seeing him is that, you know, if there's any truth to this at all, she is just fixating on how wounded he is and how, how weak he is and how he's a little lost lamb and he needs her, right? you know, and how he's being so traumatized by the, the horrific murder of his wife. Mm -hmm. And she's just not allowing herself to have the thought or to hear the thought, you know, the, the murder was so terrible because he probably committed it. Right. Does she ever have a conversation with him where she's like, I need to know what you were doing at 10.30 p.m. on June 12th? Not that she writes about. Okay. And what happened is that she immediately, she essentially comes out as a member of the defense. Comes out like publicly? Like there's media swarming around, I guess? Immediately, yeah. Like her mom in Panama City, Florida is being besieged by media. Oh, wow. Jesus. That was a time before all the journalists got laid off and there were still enough bodies to do stuff like that. They're like, let's send 30 people to Panama City, Florida. For the mom of the girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like the OJ Simpson trial was like when unions were strong, there was just so much media work, you know, in in OJ Simpson. So they're keeping OJ sedated at the Kardashian Mance. Like medically. Yeah. Okay. Dr. Saul Fairstein, a psychiatrist to the dream team has brought on gives Paula sedatives and tells her to give OJ a pill in the morning and a pill at night and to make sure that he doesn't have access to the bottle wink wink. Okay. Like a dog. This is great. Then I met the owner of the house, Robert Kardashian, who'd been out with OJ that afternoon. He was short and intense, friendly, but contained, like a character out of The Godfather with some big secrets to protect. Wow. Kardashian said they'd been staying with OJ every minute. The only time OJ had been on his own was in the bathroom. Now it would be my turn. So she's essentially guarding him. Hmm. Like they have him on suicide watch. Right. In the Kardashian home in Encino. There's interesting psychology going on here with Kardashian too. Uh This is a very interesting thing for like a man to do for another man. He's doing what Paul is doing. Yeah, he's doing exactly what Paul is doing. He's going into like rescuer mode. I never thought of that before. But not for like romantic reasons, just for like personal i mean i guess he's just like an empathic dude but in that way that like men seem fixated on oj right because yeah in the same way that when oj met nicole she was like who what who's oj simpson right when paula met oj she was like who what yeah but 
Robert Kardashian knows golden age OJ Simpson and their friendship was forged in that time. And he feels that kind of loyalty to like past OJ in the way that a lot of men seem to do. The way you do to like John Lennon or the way that people get fixated on these like entertainment stars who are sort of larger than actual people to them. Mm -hmm. So she sits there that night and watches OJ sleep. She mentally plays back the answering machine message that she had left for him on Sunday morning. And says to herself, had I said the wrong thing? Had I somehow set off this terrible chain of events? That assumes that he killed Nicole. Yes. <laughs> That's what I've been thinking, right? Like, isn't there tacitly in there? Yeah. It's like, right? Like, if it, if he didn't kill anyone, then why would it matter what she said yeah. to him that morning? Okay. Yeah. Paula what? Barbieri would be very easy to cross-examine. <laughs> the next morning, she lays out his clothes for him to wear to the funeral. Mm-hmm. And she writes, I did all I could, but how do you help a man who seems dead inside? How do you give him his life back? And so she cleans the room and makes the bed with new sheets. Mm. This is like the epitome of woman's work, right? You're like, my boyfriend oh. has been accused of murder and I'm so I'm going to come to his aid emotionally and I will clean his house. <laughs> And she writes about, you know, everyone has the TV on downstairs and she hears just little stray words about Mm -hmm. trails of blood, about gloves, about, you know, essentially the evidence that's already coming out in the media against O.J. Simpson. And she says, I shut my ears to all of it. It's so weird. How so? It's a person who's just not showing interest in the other person. It's just fascinating to me. Mm. Like, why wouldn't you want to know some details about the crime that you're boyfriend is accused of like it's right it's baffling it's totally baffling to me well if you're already thinking to yourself like are the murders my fault i mean not that he committed them but are they my fault yeah. in a way that could not yeah. possibly connect logically yeah so at that point you really have to shield yourself from any information that could could be damning i guess yeah and he gets back from the funeral and he's you know he's still drugged but he apparently will just say out of nowhere Who would do this to Nicole? Okay. So the morning of June 17th, Paula leaves OJ groggily watching another movie on TCM, Mm -hmm. which is his favorite channel, and goes downstairs to get some cantaloupe, which is his favorite breakfast. Okay. In the kitchen, I found Bob Shapiro, OJ's newly appointed attorney, freshly creased as always. Bob tells her that... She needs to stay downstairs and the cantaloupe needs to wait because he needs to go upstairs and talk to OJ Mm -hmm. because it's time for them to tell OJ that they're taking him into Parker Center to give himself up and be arrested. Okay. Parker Center is like the LAPD thing. Parker Center is the LAPD headquarters at this time. Okay. And Paula is completely shocked because she has been focusing on keeping him afloat emotionally for mm-hmm. another hour. Mm-hmm. And then the way Paula describes it, after OJ gets the news that he's going to have to go in and be arrested, there's just this eerie sense that he's saying goodbye to everyone. And mm. she writes later, at least, she's convinced that he's going to kill himself as soon as possible. Oh, wow. Not in Robert Kardashian's house, but somewhere soon. And so his friend... A.C. Cowlings comes over. She describes him and O.J. as crying together. Oh, wow. And he gets out some some paper and starts writing and writes the letter that Robert Kardashian will read to the public. Yes, one of the few scenes I remember for the Ryan Murphy show. And around this time, O.J. says to Paula, 
I want you to go. I don't want you to be around when the press are here. I, I want you to be able to, well, let me just read it to you. She says, he looks at her and says, Paula, I don't want you here with all the photographers coming. You should be with your family. Please pack your things and go. Mm-hmm. I was moved by his effort to protect me, to gain some control over the tumult around him. I'll wait until you leave and then I'll go, I said. Don't argue with me, he said, more pleading than impatient. Just get your stuff together and have Tom come get you. And basically he gets his way and puts her in a car. She hmm. says, I love you. I'll be there for you. I love you. I'll be there for you. And he's like, listen, remember that guy you told me about that you knew in high school who was like a devout Christian and never would have cheated on his partner. And you always talk about him when I say that all men cheat, go home and marry that guy. That's like some Harry and Henderson shit. <laughs> That's also such a fucking abuser move, the the all men cheat bullshit. That's like such a, it's like such a classic, like, I'm going to cheat on you move. Mm-hmm. God, he has been reading Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. Oh, yeah. And, you know, she doesn't want to be sent away. And she writes about feeling like it was, quote, us against the world. Uh, also a bad sign. What, do you remember that phrase? Yeah, from uh-huh. Nicole. That was from uh-huh. Nicole's letter. Uh-huh. Thank you. Yes, that was also oh, you're their my, thing. You're my star yes. student. I don't know. I mean, I don't I'm sure many, many people say that who are not in abusive relationships and it's totally fine. But yeah. it's like But it's it, it's not a way of looking at th- at the world that I like empathize with or like understand on a gut level. Like I don't I feel get like you it. and I have a really great relationship, but we never are like it's us against the world. Yeah. Like yeah. the anger, like the haters raining down on us, like that's just a weird way to go through life thinking that you're constantly under assault yes and then she talks about she's she's being driven home and you know she just suddenly thinks like an innocent man just like surrendering like if he didn't commit these murders then that doesn't make sense and she says like he killed them didn't he and then she's like no no he didn't of course he didn't you know and like Mm -hmm. she like these moments like erupt in her but she just like immediately smothers them Hmm. basically and so she goes to her friend Tom's house and the police come to talk to her. There are helicopters overhead. Oh, wow. And Tom says, Paula, there's a path down the side of the mountain. You can make it out the back way. And she's like, no, I'm not going to run down the mountain. Like I didn't do anything. (laughs) I'll talk to the police (laughs) and the police come and talk to her and she doesn't know anything. And then she, you know, like the rest of America is watching TV And no one knows where OJ is or where he's disappeared to. All they know is that he has, he and he and AC have, have run off from Robert Kardashian's house instead of him turning himself in. Mm. And Robert Kardashian, as you remember, reads her letter aloud on TV. So this is the Bronco chase has started. No, this is before. Oh, so he, right. So he disappears. I'm, it's coming back to me now. So he disappears. Kardashian reads this like suicide note ish letter And Mm -hmm. then we learn about the Bronco, right? Yes. So let's actually end right before the Bronco chase. Okay. We'll pick that up with Marsha. How about that? Okay. And so let's end with what OJ wrote to Paula in his maybe a suicide note, maybe not letter. Okay. Paula, what can I say? You are special. I'm sorry we're not going to have our chance. God brought you to me. I now see as I leave, you'll be in my thoughts. It seems like the universe is calling out for her to leave this guy, but it sounds like she didn't. And she's with him throughout the whole trial 
or is she not? No, she was. Oh, no. So, okay. So, but, well, what do you think of that? What he wrote? She should have left. How come? Like, based on that? I mean, it's so dumb to be like, she should have left because, like, people don't always behave in emotionally perfect ways. I mean, to me, I just think that, I think a, a thing that is very difficult for most people to understand is that in relationships, a lot of, like, our attraction to other people has a big component of the role that they allow us to play, Hmm. right? That they allow us to take care or be taken care of. That's a big component of sort of what makes you feel comfortable with another person in a way that is often invisible to you. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like OJ was just pressing all of her, like, I need to take care of people buttons. And like, Mm -hmm. we're going to get through this together, thing. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, I always think of the guy that I dated in Denmark who was like really boring and nothing was working. And like, we weren't all that attracted to each other. And then I met up with him like to break up with him. And mm-hmm. then he mentioned sort of offhand, he's like, yeah, I, I, I grew up in an orphanage and like my parents are like alcoholics and like, I'm still in a various legal battles. And immediately in my brain, I was like, I can make this work. Oh. Right. Like, like, it was like, Ooh, like maybe, maybe it's worth a shot. Are you a Paula? I mean, I think everybody's a little bit of a Paula. Oh like, yeah. We're, we're all, we've all got Paula in us. Yes. Think about the fact that Paula's 27. What were you like when you were 27? That I was literally 27 when that happened. Yeah. <laughs> So you did exactly what she did. She's like, okay, I break up with you. And he's like, but I'm going to jail. Yeah. It's like nothing (laughs) about this is working. And then it's like, oh, but now it's like complicated and this thing and like you need me, right? And it's like that need that sort of draws you in. But it's also like it's the only way that she's going to have any power in a relationship with OJ Simpson. I mean, it actually reminds me of my favorite novel, Jane Eyre, that I wrote Mm -hmm. a terrible master's thesis about where the fact that the character of Mr. Rochester is like a good brooding lover, but probably bad husband material. And the way to get around that is, spoiler alert, by making him like mostly blind and losing the use of one hand, which is essentially like she can only have power in the relationship because he's disabled now. Oh, Paula Barbieri is experiencing her Jane Eyre moment. Like this is like... That mean review we read said that this reads like a romance novel. And it does, because this is like a romance novel plot. Right. Honestly. They're brought together because he needs her. Like, these are the stories that girls are told for our entire lives. Yeah. Yeah. Tale as old as time, Mike. Yes. If the same story was told and, like, he didn't do it, it would take She on. would be, <laughs> like, oh my God, and she would be played by the real Julia Roberts. Yeah, it would take on a whole different tenor, right? That, like, she is standing with him through this horrifying ordeal, and, like, her instincts are good. Yeah. It's just, in this particular case, like, the coin flip is, like... It's it's not somebody who, like, is worthy of this rescue mission that she's attempting. Or, I mean, if you really want to blame her and be, like, 1994 people, like, she should have shown more interest in the actual facts of the case before she launched mm. the rescue mission. It's interesting. I mean, I guess we're getting into a question of, like, what is the moral value of what she did, I guess. And I, th- I don't think that she did anything wrong. I think that Paula's only victim is Paula. Right. Right. Yeah. And the only question is whether she now regrets 
the year and a half of her life that she gave to supporting OJ during his trial and the fact that she rushed back into this relationship and stayed in it. Right. You know, and that's like, that's for her to work out. It is weird. Like the moral culpability of being too loyal is weird Mm -hmm. because in a way it's a virtue. But then if you also don't have limits to that loyalty, then it can be enabling and it can be really bad. It can be enabling. You can put, and you can put other people in danger as a result. I mean, that's not the case here, but... We can become complicit right. in violence and in abuse if if yeah. we have undue loyalty toward right. dangerous people. Right. Your opinion of her depends on like whether or not you think that the information was available to her to put a limit on her loyalty at that point. Well, I feel like I I mean, obviously, the information was available to her because she was like effectively a member of the defense team. Like right. she could have like pulled Barry Sheck aside at any yeah. time and been like, so tell me, like, yeah, what, how does this DNA stuff work? Yeah. Right. Yeah. She didn't. And my sense of what happened with her is that she was so attached to OJ and attached to, to the position that she found herself in now that he was in jail and now that he was acting entirely emotionally dependent on her. Mm. She wanted to to stay in the relationship and she felt that it was her job to mm. stay in the relationship mm. maybe not as as she didn't see the relationship as romantic she told herself it wasn't romantic she told herself that she was there like as his friend but regardless of what label you put on it she was there as his unconditional supporter and protector yeah and to me like i don't think there's anything wrong with that like clearly that was she couldn't do anything else or she would have because anything mm. else would have been better for her mm. The point is, I think that there's a, a great sense of public judgment against her and against any woman who would do something similar. And I don't entirely understand where that comes from. Mm. I mean, maybe people found out that she was dating Michael Bolton. And that's really what's <laughs> behind all of it. People people saw that video. I feel like that would have helped her. <laughs> it was 94. People loved, people loved Michael Bolton. <laughs> so we're going to stop here for now. If you... Want to find out what happens next before we release another episode? There are other sources of information. Wait, are, are we directing people to other to other shows? For I think spoilers? people know there are other shows. <laughs> I think they are aware. I'm making a funny joke because it's a comical understatement. That was what the joke was. Thank you for destroying it. You have to tell me these things beforehand in front of our children. <laughs> I'm saying if you. Find yourself thinking, there's only three episodes of this O.J. Simpson series. I need more. And if you somehow don't know that there's other stuff out there, there is. Personally, I'm not looking up shit because I don't want spoilers. No, you don't get to. Everyone else does. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to everyone but you. Yes. You have to stay. Like O.J. Simpson once said to Paula Barbieri, as far as I'm concerned, you were a virgin before you met me. Oh, my God. Oh. Yeah, it's real gross. That's not. Yeah. It was all light and funny, and then OJ said something gross. <laughs> what What are you most excited to learn about next? Like, what are you most curious about? I'm so excited to talk about Marsha Clark. Next time. Next time. Marsha Clark. To be continued. I'm going to get some Glenn Levitt and drink it in her honor, because that's, yeah. that's her favorite. I'm going to change my hairstyle, and nobody's going to care, because men can do that. <laughs> some other people can't. 